Hello, Kubernetes community. Welcome back to another episode of the Pod Cuddle Podcast. Tyler, how are you doing today? Are you, we're, we're recording this a little bit before uh, Memorial Day here in the U.S. so that we can get a show out where people can still be on vacation. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing uh, doing pretty good counting down uh, to the end of the week here and uh, the uh, holiday weekend here in the U.S. So, uh, you know, doing all those usual type things, tying up loose ends. Yeah. Have you uh, have you cleaned up all of your backlog of uh, GDPR emails that you've gotten from people over the last uh, few days? Whew, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, the upside of it is it's like some of the emails you get, you're like, where, where, what, how do they have my email? You're like, oh, yeah, that was like 10 years ago when I did a thing. And then they're like, well, you know, I guess it goes back to that whole big data thing of like, let's never throw out any info ever, even if, uh, you know, we've never seen this person in 10 years. Yep, yep. Well, listen. So we got a we got a pretty good question from from one of our listeners. So as we we always recommend to people, if you have questions, feel free to send them in. Um, so a uh, listener named Matthew sent us a question that said, um, "I was interested to know if you guys could talk a little more about the relationship between OpenShift templates, Helm templates, CoreOS operators." You know, he said, "Hey, you, you know, you've touched on a few of these in the past, but uh, you know, can you can you kind of connect the dots for us? It seems like maybe there's some overlap." Um, and ultimately, I think what he's asking is like, can you, ex- you can you better explain you know how to deploy stuff into Kubernetes? Um, which I think is a good question, and it's it's kind of a big open ended question, but we're gonna we'll try and you know address it as much as possible. Yeah, I think um, this is seems to be pretty common, especially as uh, new things come out. You know, your natural kind of brain's instinct is to simplify things so say cool this new thing what what things does it replace so i don't need those i don't need to think about those things anymore right and a lot of times that's not the case right it's like well this works a little different or if you have this type of use case it's one of those type of situations yeah exactly so i think we're going to focus more on the how do i deploy things to kubernetes things being you know containers hopefully those containers contain applications we're not going to really um, kind of rehash how do i deploy kubernetes the platform itself so that's a that's a whole different conversation and a different set of tools. So, uh, so let's start with the basics. We sort of started last week with the uh, uh, how do I secure a container, <laughs> and uh, this week we'll start with sort of like how do I deploy an application to Kubernetes. Yeah, so I mean the the, the starting point of uh, these conversations is always a, a container of some sort. So I, I have I've built a container in some way, shape, or form. I've used you know Docker Build or Builda or you know one of the many other ways. So now I have this application. How do I how do I get it there? Right, right. And then I you know so I think people get how to build an application, how to build a container. We've we've had that on a show before. That's in the show notes. And then I think sometimes the confusion becomes. Um, well, how do I get that into the format that like uh, Kubernetes understands, which is like, you know, which deployment model do I want to use? Do I want this to be, you know, just kind of a standard deployment or some custom scheduling mechanism? How do I tell it things like how many replicas to have or, you know, stateful information or whatever? And that, that also always sort of becomes like the next thing is like, how do I Kubernetesize these applications or how do I make it aware that Kubernetes should do something specific? Yeah, yeah. So you figure, you know, something as basic as just turning a container on is straightforward, like Docker run. Uh, but when an application contains multiples or there's, you know, high availability or, you know, sort of front end, back end, or they, once they start getting more complicated, obviously Kubernetes has very clean ways of describing that in things like replica sets and deployments and and those things are 
you know, done through an API and, and you can do it through a, you know, YAML with manifests with uh, kube control. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of tooling to sort of make that easier and quicker. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to get into, I think what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and, because this is a big topic and it's, it's a topic that, uh, you know, people have opinions upon. Um, there's lots of tooling that goes on. So let's let's sort of start with his question. Um, we'll start with a couple of those specific things, and then we'll kind of see where it expands to. So so he asks, um, you know, can you explain you know, OpenShift templates, Helm templates, and, and CoreOS operators? So let's sort of start with those three because they give us a framework of kind of why there's a lot of things, and then we'll get into the, the more stuff that's out there. So um, so historically, uh, let's, let's start with OpenShift templates. Like, why do OpenShift templates exist? Yeah, historically, uh, OpenShift before, you know, has existed pre-Kubernetes um, and had the concept of, of, and most sort of platforms for deploying applications have some sort of com- con- um, concept of templating, you know, open OpenStack does and, and AWS for EC2, you know, like CloudFormation templates. So OpenShift had templates. Uh, and then once it became Kubernetes, hey, we have these templates to deploy applications, you know, kind of ready to go onto the OpenShift platform. Right, right. So, you know, again, this is this gets into the thing that sometimes we get into when people talk to us about OpenShift is like, why do you have other stuff? Some of it's historical. Um, and and then when Helm came out, you know, I, I know when we were looking at Helm initially, and again, this was what, a couple of years, it feels like a couple of years ago, maybe it was only a year and a half ago or so. Um, you know, we, we sort of looked at it and there was part of us that said, well, it seems like templates, except it's sort of like layered templates because Helm lets you describe an application, but also describe, you know, more than just maybe one or two containers. It, it describes a little more than that. So there is a certain amount of, of overlap between what OpenShift templates do and what Helm uh, charts do in terms of, you know, but they're both basically mechanisms that say, I'd like to describe a set of containers as if it were an application in the context of how Kubernetes wants to deploy stuff. Yeah. So the, so the, you know, I, you know, I hate going to it, but such always a straight example that people see it so many different ways. So it's an easy way to relate is the, I want to deploy a, a WordPress uh, instance uh, is basically two containers, right? Right. One running MySQL and one running, you know, the actual WordPress web app. So the Helm chart for that de- basically describes the need for the two, you know, that they need to be able to talk to each other's service and exposing the WordPress as a service and, and things like that. So it includes all of those components. So um, the the one thing that's that's kind of different different about Helm uh, too is as a has a component called Tiller. Right now, which runs on the Kube cluster to to do some of these operations. So you say you basically tell Tiller like, here I have this chart. I want you to go run it, um, and it and it talks to Kubernetes. So there's there's some challenges there, um, which is, you say like, well, well, why isn't OpenShift just using Helm now instead? There's some some multi tenancy type challenges there uh, that we're working through. Um, and, and Helm still, you know, kind of tweaking that because when it first came out, it's like, oh, well, the tiller runs sort of as a as a as an admin level process. And customer said, well, like, I don't know if I would want to do that that way. So there's some updates to Helm going on as well as as well as OpenShift. So that's definitely a place where there, where there's overlap um, and a, pe- a lot of, a large piece that has to do with just, well, OpenShift templates existed beforehand and until, you know, everything works the way. Uh, you know, the way we want it to work, it's going to exist kind of right, thing. Right, right. Um, so the next part of the question is, you know, can you explain 
CoreOS, uh, and we shouldn't say CoreOS. I mean, CoreOS was the, the first group that came out with the idea of operators, but let's just call it the operator framework since it's now open source and, and out in the bigger community. But but explain the operators in that context. And I, and I think the first thing to to understand is that when you know OpenShift templates or Helm charts came out and so forth, um, the the goal of those things was really describe the application, deploy the application. So it was very much kind of a day one um, kind of framework, kind of way of thinking about it, but like make it simpler. Operators really takes it to that second level, which is not only day one deploy something, but day two and beyond help me operate it and operate it, uh, manage it in the in the context of what Kubernetes tries to do, what Kubernetes has aware of in terms of uh, you know failures and and replicating things and making sure that you've got health checks. So uh, help us kind of put that into a broader context. And what does that mean? It'd be between the difference of like deploying something day one and the broader context that operators has day two and beyond. Yeah, I mean that's that's the key piece of it is Helm say or, or OpenShift templates. You, know, you say go go run this say WordPress app. Uh, and and some of the Helm charts can also handle upgrades. So like upgrade this to the new version. Um, we keep the database in place. We're just going to swap out the the WordPress container kind of thing. Um, but where operators extends that is all the other things that happen after day one. So what happens if I'm running you know three front end um, pods and one dot? Like do I do are there any other operations I have to do to rejoin it? It's like well if it's a web front end, not really you know. A replication, you know, replica set can can recover that pretty easily. But what if it's a MongoDB database and that database, you know, node has to be joined back into the cluster and those types of things? So operators describe a lot more things operationally: backups, restores, uh, recover from failures. So um, there's a tiny bit of overlap from the standpoint of like you can build a CoreOS operator for an application without Helm. Um, but the flip side is, as you can also build operators for Helm charts, uh, and that includes, um, you know, there's a number of frameworks that have been built already to say, like, here I have this Helm chart, I want to turn it into an operator. Um, those, those pieces exist. So there, there's a little bit of overlap, but but they're but they're they're really working on two different pieces of the problem. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I, and I think we'll see, like like you said at the beginning of the show, like with all these different options out there, I think people have this tendency to want to go like. Okay, something new um, or something different will will be that silver bullet. Like it'll kind of do everything for us. And I think what we'll see is, um, you know, it's good to have an understanding of what the different things do. Some of them will work in conjunction with others. It'll sort of be like a one plus one is three type of thing. Um, and in other cases, you know, whatever your developer experience wants to be, like you may not care about ninety percent of the tools. Like you. You know, we should we should get a little bit into what we'll talk about, sort of what developers care about and operators care about. But like, I think the thing to take away from this is, you know, we'll have a lot of stuff in the show notes. Uh, kind of learn what some of the tools do, and then don't expect that one tool is necessarily going to be the perfect fit for your developer experience or even your operations experience, um, because we don't know exactly what that's supposed to be, right? If you talk to ten different companies, they'll tell you their developer experience or their operational experience is going to be somewhat different. And that, and that sort of leads to why we do see this proliferation of tools. And then as we typically see in, in every community and every market over time, you know, the, the marketplace tends to gravitate towards a smaller number of those that maybe do more functionality. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a thing of like, which is, you know, sort of that 
open source ethos of like, hey, I'm hacking away on this thing, building it like, oh, I, I, you know what, this would be a better way to do it. Let me build a little tool that does this. And they're like, oh, let me share it with everyone else. Like, here, I found this way to do it. Um, and that fits really good with that person or team's workflow. And then, yeah, if there's enough people that have that similar workflow, they'll, they'll you know, pick up that tool too. In some cases, it's very specific to that company or how that one person likes to work. And, and that's totally fine. That's the beauty of uh, not just open source, but also pretty standardized open source projects like a Kubernetes is, hey, however your tool decides to build the thing, the thing that's running ends up being a kube, you know, application, a deployment built with manifests. And so it's, it's the out, the output's still the same. So that way it's still compatible. And I think that's, that's kind of the nice thing is build your own tools, use existing tools. Um, but you don't have to, you know, it's not like you're going to end up with some sort of proprietary thing. Yeah. I, I think the next thing, the, the next way to sort of frame this conversation is, um, you know, there was there's and there's still this still goes on a lot, but there's this sort of conversation that goes on of um, you know platform as a service and the experiences around platform as a service versus containers as a service, and and sometimes people will sort of force a, a developer experience uh, on a platform as a service. Other times they'll say, well, that developer experience doesn't exist in a container as a service. And and this is where I think it, it, it's sort of important to think about, you know, what 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 is the developer experience you want? Um, are there different operate, operator uh, operations requirements that still are also going to use that same platform? Um, there are going to be requirements that are sort of on platform. So if your application runs on the platform, and then there's also going to be requirements when you say, well, what about when we want to interconnect or talk to or interact with things that live off the platform, whether that's like, you know, a common example we use all the time is I want to talk to an Oracle database running on a virtual machine, or I want to, you know, have my workflow interact with a AWS, I don't know, RDS service or something, you know, something that lives off the platform. So I think that's important, but let, let's start with this thing that you and I get into these conversations all the time about, which is like, you know, what's the developer experience supposed to be for some, for Kubernetes? Like, is it, can it be like a PaaS? Is there a way to make that happen? Is that not acceptable in a CAS environment? Like let's, let's walk through some of the basics of that. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the thing that where, uh, you know, kind of people get wrapped around the axle and, and you even see this where you say like, Oh, PaaS and CAS, like they're different tools in your toolbox. Use which, you know, which ones you want, but like if you really break down in the most simplest terms, what it say a PaaS is. It's a system that is made up of two parts. One builds containers and one runs containers. Uh, and a CAS is just basically the runs containers part without the builds containers part. Right. Um, so what that means is whatever exp- – so with a PaaS, you're saying here's my build containers experience, which is what the developers will use. And for a CAS, you're saying you're supplying that on your own. Right. Um, so I think that's where you can, you know, like OpenShift's example of it's basically a CAS and a PaaS, right? It's it's you can just do the kube stuff, or there's all that sort of PaaSy stuff that sort of builds containers for you and does all that stuff. Um, or in other cases, people are just using these other tools that they like, like say Helm, and say, hey, we're going to use this to put stuff onto the platform, and and um, yeah, I think I think it goes back to there's you, you, know, you talked about like different companies have different you know needs for their developers and and stuff like that. But what's what's interesting to me is I, I see with even inside same companies and even inside same development teams, you know you get people that like to work a little differently. They like different tools. They like different workflows. Um, so you see sort of I always see with uh, developers. I feel like the 
the approach is always the path of least resistance. Um, and resist- resistance could be in the form of like tooling or problems like that, or it could be people in process. And I think that's always the, the I used to say about uh, AWS is there, there are two kinds of people, the people that think developers choose AWS because it's amazing developer experience, and then people who have used AWS the uh the 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 ui ux isn't exactly the, you know it's not crazy slick and super intuitive and there's there's weird stuff like iam and but the reason developers like it is because it's there they can they can do it which you know they can figure it out they can dig through the docs and figure it out and build their thing without without any additional help and i think that's the kind of the thing that's attracted developers to CAS is they're like hey you know what i like doing docker builds uh, you know on my laptop and then pushing them that's cool for me and other ones say like oh no i want to use uh, build packs or something like that or some other tool like draft like the nice thing about kube and kube based platforms is hey, yeah, hey sure just go nuts do it that way yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it, let me let me give a couple basic examples of things that we see on a on a regular everyday basis and this will maybe explain a little bit of the developer requirements versus operator requirements. So, you know, in a lot of cases we'll talk to companies and they'll say, "Look, um my developers don't want to have to care anything about the infrastructure. They don't want to have to care about containers. They really Let's say they're a Java shop. We just want to write Java code. Um, If there's some framework things that we need to be aware of, so like a message queue or I need to connect to a, um, you know, web server, you know, sort of like the the kind of classic Java EE thing um, or whatever that might be, they're going to they're going to write code in their IDE. Um, they're going to want to be able to sort of identify that they need that thing within like pom.xml or whatever it is. they're going to commit code into something like Git. They're going to write some automated testing that'll be in whatever tool they use that'll go through their CI pipeline. And then, you know, they just want to commit code. And then somewhere down the line, something is going to say, okay, cool. It's done. It's completed testing. Now you have an artifact. Go put that artifact into the uh, into the, the running environment, whether that running environment is considered like the dev platform or production or something. So we see that a lot. And in that case... Um, that developer has no idea they're running on Kubernetes. They just know they're writing Java applications. Um, we see other. We're starting to see, you know, some companies who maybe are a little more. Their development team is sort of their DevOps team, and so in that case, the development team sort of wants to know some details about how things are deployed because ultimately they're the ones that are going to get called. And I think that's the beginning where we start to see some of this tooling that says, "Oh, okay, put." the stuff in the hands of developers that gives them some awareness of like what Kubernetes does. So it understands the deployment models or it understands pods. And this is where you sort of are starting to see this explosion of, well, here's a tool option. Here's a tool option. Here's a CLI option. Here's another option. Um, but again, that that's the, the section of the market that says my developers kind of have to know or want to know about what the deployment model looks like. And that's not necessarily the case for every company. And I think that's part of where we're starting to seeing this sort of explosion of tools, but explosion of tools for a reason, not because everybody's trying to standardize on one way of, of doing development or one set of awareness that developers should have. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's sort of the, the key piece of do the developers need sort of that operational knowledge? Are they, you know, a DevOps type team where, hey, we're, we're basically you're responsible for the app, period. So if it breaks, the same people that they're asking, you know, that the business is asking for new features are also the same people they call when it breaks. Um, you know, they they 
seem to be using lower level tooling just because you know they they want to see what's happening in flows and and that's where you even see interest in you know things like Istio and other microservice type stuff is, is that you know the same teams running the whole piece and and they're trying to kind of figure out how they troubleshoot things better and stuff like that whereas yeah there are plenty of uh, customers that you know if you ask their developers like hey you guys uh, you know big you know doing containers kubernetes like nah we're still doing stuff the same old way but then if you talk to their operations team like oh yeah we've been deploying you know we moved from vms to kube for our you know like i said for our java you know middleware apps uh, a couple years ago <laughs> yep yeah well the other side of that is you know we're seeing more and more operator you know sort of what you'd call operators um, but in reality, you know, they may be the operations team. They may also may also be the team that's just responsible for like packaged applications, right? You're not necessarily writing code. You just got package applications that, you know, sort of standard applications you want to put into containers. And in that case, it's mostly the operations team who's like, look, I deploy this set of web servers, or I deploy this uh, middleware, or I deploy this whatever it is, some ISV application. And in their case, um, you know, they're not thinking about IDEs. They're thinking about okay. You know, how do I, you know, is, is there some sort of UI-based tooling or some other based tooling that you can provide to me, whether it's embedded in the platform, built on top of a cube platform or something else that just lets me deploy those things consistently so I know what to do. So I don't have to think about YAML or maybe I do want to dig into YAML. And, and this is where you see a different set of some of the tooling that goes around this because there are, you know, as we've seen more and more, People deploy stateful applications or they lift and shift applications in the containers. That's a perfectly valid use case, and operators are managing that more than developers are managing it. Yeah, I mean, we've even seen where it's like customers that have been using OpenShift for a little while within one team, another team says, oh, we need a container. We need to do containers for this thing, and so we need another platform. You're like, well, well why? You, you have OpenShift, and they're like, oh, oh, wait, what? You're like, yeah, you want to – well, we want to do all this Kube stuff. Like, yeah, it's, it's Kube just – Use your kube control command line, point it over there, and you're good to go. So it's, I think, handling, you know, no matter what you're using for your for your kube environment, I think you'll even see within same companies, you know, different use cases. And yeah. I think in the end you'll see, you know, if you were doing some, if you were like sort of tracking what was being used, you'd probably see at least, you know, three or four tools being used against Kubernetes at the same time. Right, right. Um, the third thing, the third bucket I'll, I'll sort of put it in, or maybe, maybe this should be like a fourth bucket or something, is people will ask, okay, so there's, you know, ways to deploy stuff onto the platform. What about these like service brokers and stuff? Like how does that relate to the Kubernetes platform? Because sometimes, um, you know, I'm, inter I'm interconnecting something that lives on the platform with something else. Like, you know, walk us through sort of what's the role of the service broker then, because there is a an aspect of that that talks about deploying stuff or at least interacting with somebody who's deploying stuff. Well, th yeah, the service broker is great because I think it's one of these scope kind of uh, questions, which, you know, this is where you see this with PaaS's uh, often where they're like, oh, these people want to use containers and they're going to they're gonna build these complicated apps that are storing state and like they shouldn't be doing that. They should be building those 12-factor apps and just leave that to the platform um, because they're, they're narrowing the scope to the just the code and they say oh i do a you know create service and i get a database or whatever and and, it, and i get it and i'm good and you're like well the database doesn't come from thin air where do you think it comes from like someone is operating that so if you're if you're the company you take a you know a you know thousand foot step back you'll see you have both of those so that's where stuff like you know we've talked about the best operators comes in and and other pieces to that so that's where the platform you'll want you know the, the service broker is a way to kind of hide 
that and automate those pieces from you know developers that just want code so they can say like hey i'm building my my wordpress app i need a um i need a mysql database i can say oh in the broker i can go in the catalog and get something and from their perspective they don't know if it's deployed on platform or off platform they don't know where it's deployed they're just getting you know database and credentials but when you take that step back for the broader organization they may be deploying those mysql databases and managing them with operators in the upper uh, lifecycle management on platform or like you mentioned at the top like it could be a call to an oracle database sitting on a you know, a, a Unix box somewhere or whatever and be off-platform. Right. The, the service broker disconnects that from, from the developer having to care where it is. They can just ask for it from the catalog. Yeah, and the other nice thing the service broker does, because a lot of times people will say, well, <clears throat> if if all you want to do is get, uh, you know, a, a something database as a service from some cloud provider, like, why wouldn't you just go directly to that API? And while that's perfectly valid and still true and, and there's no reason you couldn't, I think what we find with companies as we talk to different people is the plat- the nice thing about the service broker being an integrated part of, of platform, sort of integrated into a Kubernetes platform, for example, or integrated into OpenShift, is it gives the platform team visibility of what those things look like. So you, know, you may not care necessarily that they're directly connecting to it, but you do want to know for things like um, – compliance for security reasons for just maybe it's it's showback or chargeback but you i mean you've got some way of of kind of having visibility as to what's going on and as people you know put things in multiple cloud environments or you have different groups doing stuff it does help you have some containment or at least some visibility over the thing that people oftentimes call sort of shadow it so the broker becomes a nice it's not even like a proxy point but it's just a point that Somebody in operation, somebody in security, somebody from a higher level viewpoint can see what's going on and apply potentially some some additional uh, visibility or or other sort of uh, services against that to, to make sure that it's doing what the business wants it to do. Yeah, I, I think that's the the key piece of either the broker special broker. I think is, is important when when you're mixing on platform and off platform, or you have a bunch of off platform. Um, you know, having that control point. And I think that's why even on the on the on platform, kind of the excitement around uh, operator lifecycle management is doing the same thing on platform, saying like, oh, I have all these databases, like, who asked for them? Where did they come from? How are we upgrade? You know, what are we doing with them? Yep. Yep. Um, we are getting sort of close to running out of time for our normal amount of time. Uh, we have a really long list as a last topic to talk about some of these developer experiences. And, and I think what we're going to do is we're just going to list a bunch of them. Um, and I don't mean, you know, we sort of hate to just go like, hey, here's lots of stuff, go learn it. But I don't think we have enough time to properly sort of get through it. I, I think the way to summarize the things that we talked about today are really, um, you know, Kube is great. The community is great because what it's ultimately done is it said, um, if you want to be able to describe an application with Kube-specific capabilities. Um, there's several ways to go about doing that. Um, if you want to start to use some tools or some frameworks that give you more than sort of day one deployment operations and you want day two kind of awareness to make sure that they continue to run all the time, that they're sort of self, self-driving, self that you're going to have some metrics and chargeback visibility to them and all that stuff, that's evolving. That's sort of the operator framework. Um, and then as you as I have said a, a bunch of times, right, Whatever your developers kind of want to do, 
there's a bunch of tools out there that are beginning to make that simpler, but also give you flexibility. And there's not one that that the community is is sort of forcing you to deal with. So, you know, in that space, go take a look at what's out there and and let your let your developers experiment a little bit. What they like, what plugs into their IDE, what you know, what languages they want to work with, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a, it's a very uh, collaborative process. You know, the idea I've seen. Um, companies that try and take a very stiff approach where it's like, uh, developers, give us your list of requirements and, and they think of whatever they can think of and then they go out and they like build a matrix and evaluate tools and say, okay, this is the official tool. And the developers are like, well, wait, it doesn't do this. Well, you didn't ask for that. And, you know, kind of instead of like, here, let's try some tools out. What are some key things, you know, inside of both side of the house needs out of this? Like, oh, is it, you know, making sure it's, you know, this repeatable way I can handle multiple environments or whatever, whatever your individual needs are like, does it fit? And then you sort of like work through it with some applications. And then that's usually when you find you're like, oh, we tried to do this and it didn't work. And this is kind of important. So maybe we either need to contribute back to that tool to make it do this extra thing or find another tool. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I'll recommend to people, and again, this isn't intended to be sort of a, a Red Hat specific viewpoint. It's, you know, we, we just finished Red Hat Summit. We had the luxury of of having a lot of different companies come and, and tell their story, um, lots of different industries, lots of different parts of the world. Um, you know, some were developer centric, some were operator centric. I, I highly recommend people go take a look at some of those videos. Um, we recorded all of them uh, from things like OpenShift Commons Gathering, and then you know a number of the, the Red Hat Summit sessions. But the takeaway from them, you know, while a lot of them will talk about OpenShift, and you can take away from that as, oh, okay, lots of Cube being run in production. The other thing to take away from it is. Um, you're going to see that, you know, lots of different companies in lots of different parts of the world just do things differently. And, and they'll tell you, well, we do it that way because that's our culture. We do it that way because that's the way we're organizationally structured. We do it that way because we didn't know what else to do. Like you'll start to sort of connect the dots between like, oh, okay, I see why there need to be different options. There need to be you know, things that are developer centric, things that are operation centric, um, you know, and, and hopefully it gives you a sense of, you know, what are some people doing? And quite honestly, like we always tell people, um, if if you see somebody doing something that sort of sounds like what you're working on, the problems you have or the domain you're in, the industry, like reach out to them. Um, the reason all those folks came and spoke at this event was not just because they want you know, to be visible and, and so forth, obviously, you know, they may help them recruit, but, you know, it means they're open to talking to the community. So, you know, feel free to reach out to them and we'll put, we'll put some links to that stuff in the show notes as well. So Tyler, I think with that, we're going to, we're going to wrap it up. Um, hopefully folks that, uh, that get the, the Memorial day holiday off, have a good weekend and everything. Any last thoughts about all this stuff? Yeah, I would say um, there's there's nothing replaces uh, experience. So if something looks interesting, uh, pull it down, give it a go. You know, run it against uh, your Kube environment. Uh, you know, hopefully not your production Kube environment, and uh, try them out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, folks. Um, again, Matthew, thank you for the question. Um, as always, folks, send us your questions in. We'd love to cover them on the on the show. We may do them as Q and A. We may do them as a full show. Um, if you get a chance, go out on iTunes and and rate the show. Tell a friend about the show. It helps us uh, get some more listeners, but also it. You know, it helps us uh, find better topics. So with that, we're going to thank everybody for listening this week. We'll talk to you next week.